0: Welcome back to Whitgift Conversations, the podcast where we talk to staff, to parents and to pupils about topics that are relevant to you. In this episode, we're talking to the history and politics teacher and the assistant head of higher education, Chris Van Dort. Chris will talk about his background as a teacher and what it's like having taught in deprived areas, but he'll also delve into what it is about history and politics that makes them such compelling subjects to study and to teach. We'll also get to hear his thoughts on the media's representation of history and politics and what it's like being a younger member of staff teaching subjects often associated with teachers who are of an older generation. So come with me now as we speak to the history and politics teacher, Chris Van Dort. Chris, thank you for being here and welcome to this episode of the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. Had a bit of a mad day so far going between teaching year 13, year 9 and also year 7 students amongst also proofing references as well. So happy to have a change of scenery for a little bit. So it must be radically different then teaching year
0: 13s to year 7s for example. Are they very very different classes to teach?
1: Yeah absolutely. I think one of the most striking things that I had when I started teaching was that you go into (laughs) different classes with almost no change over time. So you Mm -hmm. have to adapt massively in how you conduct yourself going from perhaps something as complicated as a nuance in historical interpretations of German unification in Bismarck's Germany to something as straightforward as talking about why castles might be uh, intimidating during the Norman Conquest. So there's (laughs) definitely a lot of variety there, Mm -hmm. but that's part of what makes the job fun too.
0: Okay, so we're going to be looking then at history and politics at Whitgift, but I'd love to understand, Chris, a little bit more about um, how you got into teaching history and politics Um, but also where you went to school yourself and what your own experience was like of school.
1: Sure. So I had a fairly all over the place education, um, to put it lightly. So I was brought up initially in Aberdeen in the north of Scotland. And I went to, I think, a couple of schools before moving abroad to Holland, Germany, went to some international schools there for four years. Mm -hmm. I then returned to Scotland, but went to an independent school, a boarding school uh, near Edinburgh then returned to an international school from the age of 15 to about 18 and completed the IV diploma. So Mm -hmm. I ended up having a variety of experiences. And I think that was one of the best things about my educational experience was that I was fortunate enough to go to some schools where you could quite literally call teachers by their first name Mm -hmm. to go where you didn't have a uniform or anything like that. But then Mm -hmm. also had experiences where you had very strict disciplined and regimented schools. So that really impacted me a lot. And one of the major through lines was that I loved learning about history throughout all of that. I then went on to university in York and then did my PGC at Durham. I completed a degree in politics and international relations in York. Uh, as I said, had a very diverse year studying and doing my PGC at Durham. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught in a very, very deprived school in Middlesbrough before going to another state school for training in Darlington as well, which mm. is in the north of England, and then finally ended up here at the grand old age of 22 to start teaching.
0: Gosh, right. I I don't quite know how you packed in so much into the first 22 years of your life.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a lot going on, but I absolutely loved it. It's been fairly non-stop. I think the most interesting years were definitely the initial teaching years. So when I did my training year in my PGC, like I said, I taught in Middlesbrough. I had the experience of a behavioural unit there too. Mm -hmm. Um, So slightly different from the scenery that I now teach in. Mm. Um, But I think... The great thing about those early years is when you're initially, you start teaching at such a young age, Hmm. you take in so many different things as opposed to, I always assume that as you get older, it becomes harder and harder to deviate from those experiences and take on different things. Hmm. And so I found that that was probably the best time to do it as well.
0: So what took you from that environment into teaching at Whitgift then?
1: Believe it or not, luck in a lot of ways. So I actually came upon this job just by complete, in a completely unexpected way. So my intention had always been to stay in the northeast of England. I'd lived there for a number of years and then just chose to apply for some jobs down south, just looking for a first teaching post. Didn't know what Wake was. Didn't know much about the school's reputation. Okay. And then inevitably just managed to somehow get a job here. And I've loved it ever (laughs) since. I think it's been a completely different experience compared to how I started in teaching, but not at all in any way any less fulfilling. And I think the exciting thing about Witget is that it has such a diversity of students. Obviously, you have your A-level history students and your IB history students, but also, like I said, teaching the younger years is great because you have that diversity of not necessarily ability, mm-hmm. but definitely that diversity in terms of levels of teaching that you have, teaching a younger year. It comes with different strains and stresses compared to the older years.
0: So in what ways do you feel like your experience of being a teacher at a at a state school in a in a, in a deprived area, how has that helped you for your
1: career at WIGIFT right now? I think the one thing I would note about the school is that it has an incredibly diverse range of students from mm-hmm. different economic backgrounds. And I think having that initial year, it gave me, number one, a, a really high level of empathy. I mm-hmm. think that it gave me an appreciation for the opportunities that students have here and to make the best of that for them mm-hmm. and to really push yourself to do so. Because obviously teaching in these trickier schools, not all students are blessed with the perhaps the same fortunes and prospects but it does also make you realize that you're in it for the same reason i think that my outlook in teaching actually hasn't changed massively going between these schools so obviously starting in these tougher schools your your job is to do the best by those students and to make sure that they can somehow get over the line Hmm. in the same way i think my outlook is the same here is that actually even though you're in these completely different environments Mm -hmm. these skills of being a good teacher are still very very similar which is caring about the students and making sure that they can be the best that they can be for sure
0: Interesting. So you're saying then that the basic fundamentals of teaching and the reason why you go into teaching in the first place, your environments might be different, but actually the, those fundamentals don't change then.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. That's definitely what I would say about it. And I think what I found was that some of the teachers that I first started training with academically were very, very similar levels. I think in the toughest school I worked in, I mean, a lot of the teachers there were Oxford graduates, were mm-hmm. top level graduates, and it decided that they threw a, a certain what they would consider a moral compass felt like they wanted to go in at the bottom end of state schools and really make the impact and difference there. But I'd argue that also in a school like this, you can make just as much difference to a student's life as well. Interesting.
0: Okay, let's talk about history and politics then. What is it about history and politics that makes that such a compelling subject to study today?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a question I get asked a lot, quite often by prospective parents to the school. It's one that I quite often get at open evenings and options evenings for GCSE and A-level. And I think the the thing I always go by is that coming from a, well, not a history degree, coming from a politics and international relations perspective, I always say that I love it because it's a bridging subject. Mm-hmm. So whilst, for example, when I, I learned about politics, you, turn, you tend to focus on the political aspects of something and then you close off there with theory. Mm. Whenever I studied history in school or whenever I teach it, I love to make applications to other subject areas. So, for example, when you could be teaching something like Mao's China, you can talk about the biological aspects of it and the mistaken biological aspects that someone goes by. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can talk about, for example, the economic implications of certain policies in Castro's Cuba, for example. And Mm. I think those areas are really, really compelling because you can actually branch out and you can even get to kind of philosophical and psychological questions as well about why someone is driven to make certain decisions. So I think rather than just saying history is a uh, memorization of dates, and things like that, you can go a little bit further and say, actually, when someone is put into a really challenging position, how do they decide on those policies? How is it that these implications in different subjects kind of come across as well?
0: So when you're talking about that kind of thing, what sort of examples are you thinking in your head when you're explaining that?
1: So again, I think that the one I've been teaching that's fresh in my mind is just from Mao's China Today a lot, but we were talking and covering the Great Famine in China, the worst famine of the 20th century, and we spoke a lot about how they got, how the individuals who were relatively educated got to these types of decisions. How did they implement policies that were so wide of the mark that it resulted in these these huge famines? And then how do they actually pick up the pieces? And one, one student asked me, they said, how do these people live with themselves? Hmm. And I said, well, that's a hmm. difficult question. And they even said, how do people even begin to think they're the correct policies? Hmm. And so we got into this broader discussion instead of actually about the specific Maoist policies, but why someone would be driven to make an extreme policy stance or why someone is devoted to their decision. And we spoke about pragmatism versus ideologues, so people who are completely devoted to ideology versus those who are willing to make essentially turning back and, and, and moving away from those decisions and willing to make cutbacks on their ideology if they think it will something better Hmm. and again that's kind of what i really enjoyed talking about is that you can really implement those kinds of questions and you can quite often start lessons as well where students can piece things together and start with much broader questions so those were the kind of examples that i have in mind i tend to always start my lessons with a bigger question for example with year 10 yesterday we were speaking about where to draw the line on on just war when is something no longer to uh, can can it be considered a justifiable and acceptable position to go to war over and Hmm. Again, you just get to these much bigger questions that I think are almost beyond history. So that's really why I find the subject so compelling is that it gives you that opportunity to assess other subjects, but also far, far bigger questions too.
0: When you mentioned about justifying going to war, I think a lot of people listening to this right now might remember Tony Blair, of course, and the WMDs. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you think that that event will be remembered in history as, uh, as, a, as a turning point or as a black mark on Blair's time in office here in the UK?
1: Yeah. So I think that that's a tricky subject to really go into depth over uh, and maintain political neutrality. Mm-hmm. I used to teach Blair's Labour last year and the year before. And I always maintained that when teaching, it, I'd keep different aspects separate, because that's how I thought it was the easiest aspect to teach it, because it's so easy to sledge or criticize a government's decisions based on, for example, going, right, Iraq, therefore, terrible prime minister. And I think there are other aspects of it where you can say right well domestic policies were very very effective and one discussion I always have at the start of that lesson is what makes an effective leader and at what point do you call someone bad what's the criteria that we use I am sort of dodging your question as much as possible (laughs) but I think the the fairest assessment to say is to bracket it out Mm. because aspects of history and politics are rarely ever black and white it's very rare that you can condemn someone for being an ineffective or poor leader As much as you can, praise someone for being a fantastic leader. There are many people who would praise, for example, Thatcher or on the other hand, completely criticise her. And Mm. I think it depends on the lens on which you're looking because it's almost impossible to remove those biases. So, for example, someone like myself, who is a little bit younger, does not fully remember all of the Blair years. And for example, when I teach, I try to talk a lot lot about Cool Britannia and the mid-90s and all the sort of music that gets integrated into that and how that gives it a lift that I'm sure Mm. you might remember yourself as well and trying to talk about how that led to a just huge surge in popularity, rather than just focusing on the negatives and positives of those policies. Mm. But I think the there is no getting away from the fact that it leaves a black mark. It's just about when teaching it, trying to remain objective in that mm. sense, mm. and look at the other sections rather than just letting a coat of, or a kind of smog of negativity spread out into teaching those things. Mm. I think it's crucial mm. to avoid that. That lens when you're teaching things, for example, when I'm uh, teaching other political subjects, I find it really, really easy to move into caricatures right? and assess, for example, the late 2000s recovery as, uh, or sorry, just leading up to the 2008 uh, stock market, right, well, massive crashes and depression as being incompetence. Okay. When in reality, there's a lot more to it than that. Mm. And it's easy just to use these sort of large kind of, when you have that headline kind of news and headline kind of grabbing titles and saying this was stupidity when in reality there's a lot more nuance to it Hmm. and i think what you find is that it's really important not to teach it that way as easy as it might be when you're standing up in front of students because it can Hmm. lead to generalizations in their writing too
0: do you think that the media has something to answer for regarding the way that sometimes you know you mentioned yourself that history is rarely black and white but people do often form their own opinions and
1: you know is that something that all comes from the media Crucially, media has changed so much in the last 20 years or so. There's no getting away from the fact that the landscape that even I grew up in to the one I'm surrounded by now in terms of how we consume has mm. changed and is unlikely to go back. I can still remember a time when I would be interested in a broadsheet newspaper. I don't know any students, and I actually asked recently, who open up a broadsheet newspaper and get consume media and news via that. They're far more into clickbaity titles you know, something that they can find on social media, or something that pops up on their phone that just has a one-sentence headline that they can click on and read, and they might make their decision based on that headline, Hmm. rather than reading any further. And I think, unfortunately, there's a, well, there's an academic called, uh, well, there was, called Joseph Schumpeter, and his main idea was this idea of creative destruction. And he said that, unfortunately, in modern and capitalist societies, and he was writing about 150 years ago, he argued that The beautiful thing about it is that we create continuously, Mm -hmm. but simultaneously we are destroying the things that foundationally make us quite good and progressive and strong. Mm. So, for example, with the media, social media has created this new, outstandingly quick access to information, but you're also destroying the foundations upon which we got accurate, clear, and well-rounded information. And I think the media has had to adapt to that, Mm -hmm. but simultaneously i think they're destroying in many ways objectively or well i guess subjectively detailed and interesting news at the same time so i think there is a lot to answer for but unfortunately they're just surviving they're living in a world where they need to survive If if a newspaper or a company just needs to survive they have to adapt and that means that as that goes sometimes the depth of news can fade away i think nowadays i mean even things as amusing as meme culture and and stuff like that Mm -hmm. now has a place in politics. A politician, let's say, for example, Ed Miliband, many people say that his election died on the bacon sandwich gate. Hmm. And the images of that lost him a lot of popularity. And a lot of people still stereotype that. And when I bring it up in class, even students who are 15, 16, remember that or are aware of that. Tell
0: me what it's like then being a younger teacher, teaching something like history and politics. Do you find that it's Helpful to you, or helpful to the students, for you being a younger teacher and being closer to their age and possibly more understanding as to what it's like to
1: be a young person today? I found teaching initially so I started at the age of 21 when I did my PGC, and the first year was incredibly difficult because ultimately, students think if you're that age that you are a friend to them first, Hmm. which is obviously completely inaccurate. And it can lead to them trying to be uh, almost pally with you and chat away to you and thinking that they can get away with not doing certain things because you're young and you can probably be talked around to it. Mm. So I think creating healthy and clear boundaries between student and teacher early on that age is absolutely crucial. I think any teacher who says that they've never had any behavioral issues right at the beginning mm. is probably not being 100% truthful because mm-hmm. students do test boundaries. And I think mm-hmm. definitely those early phases Phases were incredibly challenging. Hmm. In my first school, I had a class of 42 students, some of which, as I mentioned, were in behavioral units, and I didn't know quite how to deal with that. I definitely wouldn't say that I was exceptional in that role, but I definitely gained a lot from it. And it's meant that as I teach now, with that added experience and having it at such a young age, I think I've taken on a lot of the lessons from that. I think the clear thing is just making sure that you maintain those boundaries and are always clear and open about why you're there i always maintain that there should be a level of openness with students i've never agreed with that whole concept of don't smile until christmas when you you start with a class i think it's important to let them know and acknowledge that you're human but knowing where that point is to stop to make sure that they don't think that you're a friend Hmm. so Hmm. i always say i'm open and i say i'm here not to be your friend but to get you the best grade possible Hmm. if there can be a joke in there if there can be a laugh in there and amongst it that's great but you have to know where that line is. And I try to make sure that those boundaries, as a young teacher at least, are as clear as possible so that they know when to, they overstep it mm. and when that boundary of almost being friendly or human with them has to stop.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that detailed answer there, Chris. Tell me something about when you're not in school. Maybe it's the weekend and you're thinking to yourself that because you're interested in history and politics, maybe you're going to read an uh, about an era in history that possibly is an era that's that's not something that you'd normally teach in school. What would you like to read up on? What would you normally go
1: and choose to watch a YouTube video on? When I'm actually not teaching history and politics, one of my strangest fascinations in that section, I guess, well, I guess there's two, actually. So the first one that's a bit more alternative would be the integration of music and politics. So obviously I mentioned Cool Britannia earlier in the 90s, but I've always been fascinated how political protest and music interlink. And how there's been a through line of that in relatively modern society. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So, Tropicalia would be one. So, that was the 60s movement in Brazil. Okay. And looking at how that integrated into political movements. But it can also be something as contemporary as Kendrick Lamar and how he's inciting awareness of racial divides, perhaps, in America. And how that can give people that age in that area political awareness and an element of representation that they perhaps had not had before. It can even go as far back as something like The Clash right, in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and the role that they played in allowing working class people to feel like they were part of something and making mm-hmm. them more politically aware too. Okay. So I think there's different areas of it, but I really enjoy reading on how different musical groups gave that either representation or awareness. Alternatives that my major political kind of interests and passions lie actually away from the UK. So a lot of the things I read up on when I was at university focused on International relations, looking at African development politics, the inconsistencies and incorrect sort of Western dominated paradigms that go with African politics and also Asian politics, Hmm. looking at regional groups and then strangely enough, democratic transitions. I find that really, really fascinating why, for example, some countries transition to democracy from an authoritarian regime with relative ease. And then some find it significantly more there being significantly more barriers. So that's something that I personally just enjoy reading up on in my spare time and looking at how countries can transition from from these two different types of regimes and why some even get stuck in the middle, too.
0: And just a quick example, then, of one that's made that transition quite straightforward and another that's made it by experiencing lots of barriers.
1: So I think the most comical ones I read about, well, not comical, I guess, it, I wouldn't make it light of it, but Venezuela and Brazil, uh, Brazil's democratic transitions in the 70s and 80s, if you can mm. call them that, or attempts to move towards democracy were really, really interesting. And what I read a lot about them was how you can have two different types of democratic transition. There was a thing called modernization theory, which suggests that as countries get more and more developed, they are more likely to become democratic. And these were two countries at the time that were developing well. And both right. had wide amounts of oil wealth. As I'm mm. sure you're aware, Venezuela and Brazil are two countries that have a lot of oil reserves. And so the implication was that they should transition to d- democracy relatively well and, and mm. thoroughly and quickly and easily. Mm. And what ended up happening, at least at the time, obviously this has changed in the last few years, was Brazil made the transition much more easily than Venezuela did. And the reason for that was resource diversification. Okay, and That's the argument that I've kind of found a lot very, very interesting is that countries that transition easily to democracy tend to diversify their resources away from that one thing that gives them the wealth in the first place. Oh, I see. So for example, Venezuela and Brazil both have oil wealth. Brazil invested in education, healthcare, and creating other baselines, whereas Venezuela doubled down on increasing this oil industry, but it meant that any shifts in the economy or in oil price meant that they got hammered significantly more. So those are two examples of countries that had it completely different ways up until recently. I know Brazil's had its recent difficulties. Um, South Korea would be another great example of a country that's made a relatively successful transition to democracy.
0: Hmm. Chris, we need to bring this episode to a close in a minute. But if anyone's heard anything and wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect with you at school?
1: Well, fortunately enough for any of the more senior students in the sixth form centre, I have an office in there and they can obviously come and see me to speak about anything from applying to overseas university, which is part of my role in the school, mm-hmm. to also just chatting about anything with music or politics, which are aspects that I love. They can also email me at cvd at And I'm happy to talk further about this here too. Awesome. Well, look, Chris, thank you for your time. Thank you for being here today and
0: opening up this world of history and politics at Whitgift to us all this afternoon. Thank you very much.
1: No problem. Thank you very much.
0: So that was Chris Van Dort, history and politics teacher and the assistant head of higher education at Whitgift. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us on this episode of the podcast. It's great to hear your passion for the subjects you teach. Now that's it for this episode. Our next episode is coming out soon, but in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.